Welcome, Mr. Bob Jackson, CEO and founder of the Roseland Ceasefire Project. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show today. How are you doing? Good morning. Good afternoon, Jason. Thank you for having me. Yes, a real pleasure. So you are the founder and CEO of the Roseland Ceasefire Project in South Chicago. And maybe we could just start by you sharing about Roseland Ceasefire and what it is that you do. Okay, yes. Roseland Ceasefire was founded in 2006. It was a membership initiative that started out of the State House of Illinois. State Representative Bob Rita and Representative Davis initiated this to help combat violence in and on the far side of Chicago. Our particular beach then were 522 and 523 police beats in Chicago, 5th District. I was trained through the abundant Dr. Gary Sluckin, who taught us that the model was to treat this as a health epidemic. And like any other health epidemic, you have to create some type of preventative cure. That being said, we went through training with him up under the cure of violence out of Chicago for a period of uh, months. Then we were uh, given areas in Chicago based on the membership initiative funding. My funding was for the far south side of Chicago, particularly the 1934 Ford, Pullman, West Pullman, and the Roseland area. We've been working those areas along with the South Suburban Cook County, which includes Harvey, Markham, Robbins, Fort Heights, Calumet City, Calumet Park, Riverdale Park Forest. We have responded into shootings and homicides and Hazelcrest and Country Club Hills. And how does that work? How do you get called to a shooting? What's the process like? The process is that we get a call directly through from the 5th District in Chicago. They notify me, and then I notify the team or the program manager, and then they send out the teams to respond to shootings. When they respond to shooting, they canvass the area, also talk if there's any victims, families available to talk with, they talk with them, tell them the things that we have available to help them uh, as far as anger management, grieving counseling, and the help with uh, funding the funerals through the State of Illinois Assistance Program. After that, then we do a follow-up for us grieving to help the families uh, to adjust to losing a loved one. And and you've been doing this since 2009? Since 2006. 2006. And how many shootings do you respond to each year? Oh, wow. Well over 100. Well over 100. Wow. Yes. And uh, we're currently uh, working through that. We're working and providing a new system that we'll be working in South Suburban, suburban areas called Beacon. Beacon should help us with a pilot program to be working it out of Harvey, where we'll get a call just like in Chicago from the police department, Harvey Police Department, and then we will dispatch our teams to respond to that shooting crisis at the time. Excellent. That's uh, wonderful that you're getting involved with this. And I'm wondering, what's the relationship like with the police department? Because I assume that you need to 
maintain a certain degree of independence your your responders when they're on scene so that they're not necessarily seen as you know an extension of the police department but at the same time you do work with the police department how does that relationship look how does that operate and that's usually look like when we get the call we work independently um, because we're working with the families direct and there's also other individuals as they're watching our movement and what we're doing. My team do not deal directly with the police at all. We go about what we're standing, our standard operation procedure is, which is making contact with the family, calming individuals down, and try to assess the situation. Usually if there's any information that's gathered, they give it to me, and then I will dissect how that will be stewarded out. Our key goal is to stop any retaliations among the people, that the perpetrator and the victim's families. So you're really getting in the thick of it there and, and really have to establish your credibility with the victims and with the perpetrators. How do you recruit your, your responders, your team members? Our team members that come from the community, these are credible people who have a history uh, non-gang members who've been in the community and that the residents and community feel comfortable with talking to. And and do they go through any type of training once they join the team? Yes, sir, they do. They initially go through a seven-day training, first uh, in school, and then they uh, go out to the field and do real-life situation and training out in the field. After that, they go to a once-a-week training to help them debrief how to put information into a system called RedTrack, which also is another technology to track what our teams are doing in what areas. It has to do with their reporting of their clients and how well they're doing with their clients and giving them good referrals and changing the mindset for our clients and getting them jobs, helping them with court situations and trauma training. So there's an ongoing process with this. Training never stops. Of course, of course. And that, that's a lot of responsibility for them. Did you design this training yourself or is it, you know, a formal standardized training? It initially was a, a standard that Dr. Slucken has organized at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And then since then, we have tweaked it a little bit to, to apply to Rosen Ceasefire and things that we're doing. So it's a model within a model. And based on each community, that situation, that model may change or vary, but the whole thing is keep the basic model to treat it as a health epidemic because shooting and killing is not normal. That's a learned behavior, and we have to change that. And because of the trauma in the community, now the whole community is traumatized, and now we have to create a cure to de-traumatize them and get them back to some sense of normalcy to say that this will not be tolerated in our community. And we have to have all the citizens in that community echoing the same thing. Violence is not our norm. Violence is the anti-norm. That's really powerful, really powerful stuff you're working on. Can you tell me what are the main goals of the training? Like when you have a new recruit come in and they do the seven-day training, what are the, the main objectives for them to learn by the end of those seven days? Well, first thing is to, them to understand the model, why they're out there. And what is the model main purpose? And then we start teaching them how to execute the model. 
We give them various scenarios from responding from the hospital, how to show up on a scene of a homicide when it's fresh, how to deal with the parents and loved ones when things are going chaotic. They must keep their wits about them and their mindset and stick to what they've been taught in training. Fourthly, then they'd be taught on various situations how to respond to peace rallies, how to conduct a peace rally, how to do a vigil, what to do in the vigils, how to contact the police to let them know we're having vigils. There's a whole different dynamic and the situations for each scenario they'd be taught. That's why the training is ongoing. How to talk to people over the phone when there's a crisis situation how to deal with Facebook interactions with our clients and other clients, how to de-escalate things on face, off of Facebook, or Twitter, or anything TikTok that's going on that will get a lot of our young people upset or try to kill. Wow, all sorts of different ways that you have to get involved, especially social media sounds like a real ripe area for problems. Do you talk with other groups in, you know, are there other groups like yours in Chicago that you work with, or are you primarily the only group in your area? We, we have various groups that's in our sector, uh, but our key point is our referrals and our partnerships, who we send our clients directly to, like Metropolitan Family Services, Community Assistance Program, like Zion, uh, the YWACA. Uh, those groups, uh, Metropolitan Legal System, Cabrini Green Legal System, the Cook County Health Force Initiative. So there's different referrals, the Cook County Court System, probation, and a juvenile. So we have various partners that we work with that we do referrals to help assist our clients in whatever needs. We have housing assistance. We have drug abuse assistance which all these things can lead to what? Violence and gun violence. So we try to do a wraparound approach based on the needs of the client. So each client has their own designated referrals to help them with their particular needs. So the, the objective is the same to prevent and uh, reduce violence. And it sounds like there are a lot of ways that this can happen, but it has the same goal. I'm wondering if you could share a recent example, you know, start to finish from when you got the call to when, for all intents and purposes, the case was concluded. If you could walk us through an example. Yes, sir. We recently had a situation where a young man was shot and killed. We arrived up and seen a few hours afterward. The scene was still hot with a lot of activities. Uh, bullets are being collected. Uh, the yellow tope tape is around the gunshot victims and the victim. The parents and their loved ones was out there crying. Our job being to step in, identify ourselves, of course, we are in the, our uniforms, which are uh, orange and black. And they recognize that as we come as peacekeepers of the community and to assist the community. Once that happens, we then do a follow-up. Uh, the next day with the family, and then we start helping them if necessary with funeral arrangements, getting the proper victim's assistance form. Some cases, contact state's attorney, they ask if they can speed up the process to help the victim's family. Then sometimes we end up having to talk with the funeral home to ask them if they can wait on the victim's assistance money. Oftentimes, they accommodate the families. We go to the 
sometimes to the burial site, to the after-funeral proceedings. And then the real work starts with the families two or three months, a year later, when they need somebody late at night to talk to. That's when the real counseling and grieving process start. The first five, six months to a year, people are still around you. But as time goes, people leave off and start diminishing. But for that mother, father, uncle, sister, brother, that is still real. And that's when most ceasefires is still there with them. So it never actually ends as a continuance. And then we ask them as time goes on to be part of our grieving parents, grieving mothers group to help others to get through that pain from their experience, how to deal with this, the grieving process. That's really, really intense. What incredible work you're doing and such a valuable service. But unfortunately, you know, it's unfortunate that this is as common as it is. I'm, I'm wondering if you could share when you arrive on scene, how do you decide who you're going to, you know, where the intervention needs to happen, right? Because on the one hand, there could be grieving family members, but they actually don't have any intention of reciprocating the violence. Instead, it's a, you know, another gang member who's going to look for their pound of flesh, so to speak. How do you decide where the intervention needs to happen or who needs to be interacted with? The supervisor on the scene at that time evaluates the situation. They will look, you will have one set of individuals dropping off anti-violence and shooting materials going door to door. You would have another individual uh, actually standing next to loved ones, calming them down or hugging them or being supportive. You have another individual who is now working blocks over to see if they heard or seen anything to make sure that what's going on in the neighborhood other than right there on that particular block is the other activities. After assessing that, they'll see if anyone on other blocks are gearing up to do any retaliations. We then start checking the Facebook pages of the victim and seeing what's going on there, what they're saying, who may be supportive and sympathetic to the victim, and those who are making other types of comments, which is not appropriate at the time. After that, normally it takes about four to six people to be out, to be effective. Sometimes based on the time of day, it may be just one person. Uh, I mean, they never go out alone, so it's always at least two individuals. So that could be up to, up to six people, but at least two? Yes, sir. And are these team members volunteers? Are they paid staff? Is it a, a mixture? It is a mixture of volunteers and paid staff. Yes, sir. So this is, um, I mean, especially in Chicago, we've all, we've all read the headlines and it sounds like there could be some days when, when you've got multiple teams going out on the same day. Do you, do you often have to manage more than one case or? Yes, sir. Depending on the situation, we may have teams in the suburbs as well as in uh, West Portland. And they may be as far out as Fort Heights, Chicago Heights, to the other end of Blue Island. It depends on what the day is like and how many shootings. We try to respond to as many as we can. If not anything, we try to get information so we can reach out to the family members at a later date. And does your teams do any interaction in, or engagement with the gangs during the course, you know, to prevent shootings? Our interrupters, if they're identified as an active gang member, then we have specialized people that deal with the gangs, which are called interrupters, and their job is to deal with the gang and gang activities and try to talk to the people that's in charge of the gangs or the leaders. 
this is just such a lot of responsibility for you all to take on and and it's really really incredible yes sir and keeps us busy yeah i'm sure it does how did you personally get involved in this i understand you you were sharing about how the organization started but i'm wondering how how did you come on to take this role remember i stated it was a membership initiative and the elected officials in that communities at that time selected me to assist them with this project. I was on staff with elected officials at that time. And I was, to be honest with you, Jason, this was supposed to be a six-month pilot to help to get it up for money, and I would have been back on staff. Guess what? 17, 18 years later, I'm still out here. So, <laughs> Wow. No, there's a lot of work to be done, yes. And you have a true passion for it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Changing the mindset of our young people and old people about how they feel about gun violence. We want our neighborhoods to just as safe as any other neighborhood. Gun-free, violence-free, as best as it can be. Over your 18 years doing this, what changes have you seen in the in the communities? Is there more engagement from the the government or the local leaders, or is it is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Uh, we do have more engagement from the local leaders, government, state, federal, county levels. We also uh, have seen a erosion of gang leadership. So therefore, you have a bunch of cliques that's out here working independently with no hierarchy and no one particularly you can go to to talk to them about their activity. Those are the biggest changes. Uh, yes, the funding is coming now to help with mental health. A lot of issues that affect gun violence, court cases and things, now, the federal government, county, state is contributing. So with, you know, since the, mor- since the murder of George Floyd across the nation, communities have been reassessing the role of 911, right? Do we need to send the police every call? And now there's in the mental health space, there's 988, which is, you know, supposed to be the 911 for mental health crises. I'm wondering, what's your take on all of these changes that are happening? Do you think that they're uh, headed in the right direction? Do you think that they've got promise or do you think that they may run into a lot of problems? I think personally, having mental health professionals on the scene, I would definitely help help to assess the situation so that the police can do what they're trained to do. Just like what we're trained to do. If everyone's working in this sector, then we theoretically should be able to calm violence and come up with resolutions so it doesn't occur again. Do you think that there's anything in particular that could really help you make a bigger impact, but you're missing right now? Other than funding and that's the key and other um, technical training and devices to help us to respond and to show that we're actually doing our work and getting results from that work, which we need continuous changing five to 10 year or longer. Um, boots on the ground, the same units, same teams out there before you see real, because you can't keep changing in and out when the money run out, then you have to retrain a whole new group. You should be able to be able to keep these professionals on the ground, paying them good salaries so that they stick. Because once they know the area, it takes a while to get people trained back up. Right. Especially when a lot of the training is happening in the field. Correct. You need that field experience. 
Yes, sir. Need that experienced person out there. So that's where we are, Jason. You, you mentioned about proving your impact. What kind of metrics do you collect and do you show to your funders to say, this is how we're having an impact? From our side, I come from an EMS background. Our number one metric is how quickly we get there, right? That's number one. And then what are the patient outcomes, right? Did they survive or, or you know, did we reduce the pain and suffering? Whatever it may be, it, it can be a number of different things. But the primary one is response times. I'm wondering, what, what is it for you? How do you go back to your funders and, and the folks who are supporting you and you say, this is proof right here that we're getting our, the job done? Well, just like you, response time is critical. You, the quicker you're there, the better you are able to assess the situation and ease the, ease the victim's pain. Also, when you can show a funder a number of times that you responded and they can actually see where hit testimonies from the families that they say, hey, look, they came in at a critical time and helped us adjust through this process, okay? And those are the things that people remember, those things that the funders want to see, well as the statistical data, but they want to hear true testimonies from the people that we're working with on a daily basis. Those are our best evaluators. Right. So the, the psychosocial, emotional support. I'm wondering, if, I'm wondering if there are other metrics you might show as well. Like you were talking about wraparound services and also, you know, job placement or talking about, you know, transitioning back into society. Are those other programs that you're involved in or are those more? Yes, sir. Rosa Ceasefire do have a reentry program uh, that we have uh, individuals that are coming out of prison to readjust uh, psychologically and emotionally uh, to come back. Because oftentimes they come home from society where they were in prison, now they're open to society and things have changed, especially given the period of time that they've been gone. So that's a whole nother story. Yes, we try to assist as best we can in every situation, Jason. It's not a cookie cutter type situation. Every individual family has a different need and different dynamics on how we have to figure out how to resolve that and ease their pain and get them back to be productive residents of the community and participants. That makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. I'm sure there's a hours of conversation we could have about this. I'm wondering for, you've been at this again for 18 years now and in a very in an area with a very high rates of, of gang violence. In other cities, these kind of programs may not exist to the extent that yours do. Uh, I'm wondering if you could share some advice that maybe you wish you had when you were starting out or that you could share with other groups that are trying to get involved in this as well. What were the lessons learned when you were starting this program that really made a d big difference in your success? Uh, be patient with yourself, patient with your team, and above all, be patient with the community and know that this is not a quick fix. This is going to take time. We still have clients who gone away, went to college, that's still dealing with trauma from their community. Now, these are successful people, but they still have baggage and they're periodically, they open up that suitcase and dig in it and it has to be someone to help them sort through that suitcase and the clothes in the suitcase and put it in it properly. 
the movie from out the suitcase to a drawer where that drawer can be closed permanently. So they can move on with their life. Patience. That's, that's a really, I, I can attest to that myself. Uh, when we started working, we were thinking it's going to take us two, three years to get where we want to go. And it's been 10 years and we've gotten farther than we expected, but we sure didn't take it as, think it would take as long as it has. That makes a lot of sense. Yes, sir. You got to have patience and be patient with yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I thank you very much for your time, Mr. Jackson. It's been a real pleasure. It's been very informative and, and we're very glad to be working with you and excited to see where things go. Yes, sir. And as it stays, let's get it on, okay? So thank you, Jason. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. You too. Thank you.